There is a proverb, Proverbs 10, verse 7, that says, The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. And who better to understand that than someone like Solomon, who would have seen this in his own household? There's certainly no name, there's certainly names that you would do your best to not name your children unless you expect them to have trouble. Adolf might be one of those names, for instance. Another one of those names, Delilah, although in a wicked generation, we tend to favor names that seem to be wicked. Another one of those names is the name Absalom. It's a lesser known. I mean, there's certainly ones like, for instance, Judas. If they were to say, oh, you're being a Judas, we kind of get an idea of what that means. However, Absalom has in his own story such a, well, not a unique, but a transcending issue. A man who, in essence, leads a revolt to seek to, in essence, extinguish his own father. That we find ourselves in this place where I look at certain people in Scripture and I just go, God, whatever it took to get this guy where he is, don't let me take that route. But as a pastor, as a person who desires and loves people, it's more than just, God, don't let me become an Absalom, but also, don't let me in any way father an Absalom. Don't let me be somebody who leaves a legacy of an Absalom in his life. Next week, we will see in a greater degree, as we actually look from, as we continue verse by verse and chapter by chapter through Second Samuel, next week we'll actually start to see what that revolt looks like from Absalom. However, tonight what we're going to see is the making of that Absalom. And in our lives, what we're going to see is we are living in a culture, and I'm not one of those people that just likes to talk about politics and all that, but rather we want to look at it from the perspective of a family and from a home and from a church, from Christians, about what it really looks like to make an Absalom. So we can start asking ourselves, am I in any of my behavior making such a thing? Am I actually acting like an Absalom? Am I actually in a route to becoming more like an Absalom? Now, interesting, the, word, the name Absalom is actually quite a nice name. Abba, like Ab, means father. Shalom means peace. It means my God is peace. That's a great name. Unfortunately, he doesn't necessarily live to that name. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer. One more time, and we're going to dig into a handful of things. And I challenge you, by the way, like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures and let the Bible always be your final authority. Not any man with a mic. So God, again, pierce our hearts, penetrate our minds, and Lord, captivate us in your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2 Samuel 14, and we can go back all the way to 2 Samuel 3, we start to see the way that this looks. We have in greater detail in First Chronicles, by the way, when it chronicles the lineage of David. In Second Chronicles 3, 1, and let me just read these nine verses to you. And, and again, I want to remind you, these are the children of which Absalom will be the third oldest. It says, these are the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The first was Ammon, or Amnon, literally, Ahinon, uh, by Ahinon, the Israelites. The second was a guy named Daniel. He's also called Hiliav, by the way, in Second Samuel chapter 3, by Abigail the Carmelitess. That's the second. The third, Absalom, that's our guy. The son of Maaka, which by the way means torture or torment or oppression. I don't know about you. I don't care how fine the girl is. If she's named oppression, check please. All right. Uh, she's the daughter, what we read of, a Talmai, who is the king of Geshur. Geshur, by the way, is in the area today of between Syria and Lebanon. Kind of gives you an idea of what we're looking at. Actually, it's quite the area of Syria. The fourth was Adonia. We'll see him actually at the end of David's life, the son of Haggith, 
And that sounds a little worse than it is. Hag is actually the Hebrew word for happy. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the things you can get often instant coffee in, in Israel is a thing called cafe hag. A little strange for me because hag, of course, usually means somebody weathered and torn. So I look at cafe hag and I always think this is what you look like before you have your coffee. Anyways, but it means happy. Uh, then the fifth is Shephateah of Abital. The sixth is Ithriam, the son of his wife Egla. These six were born to him in Hebron. David reigned there seven and a half years, and in Jerusalem, then he reigns another 33 years. And then he gives a list of the sons that were born to him in Jerusalem. And each one then, again, we say these were born to him in Jerusalem. Shimea, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, four by Bathsheba, or Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. They were also born, also born to him were Ibhar, Elishema, Eliphalet, Noga, Nefeg, Yapfia, Elishama, Eliada. And there's a couple of Elishamas in there, so I guess he's sort of running out of names. Eliphalet. And it tells us nine in all. And then we read this verse at the end of all that. These were the, bo- these were the ones born, sons of David, besides all of his concubines and Tamar, their sister. Besides the sons of the, con- of the concubines. And this is what we start to see. This kid is raised in a house. And here's the first thing we see in the making of an Absalom. Is he, he's raised in a house without boundaries. What he watches in his household is a dad who at this point, if you look at it, this means he's got, he's got 15 brothers that are, in, is, and I can't even say they're legitimate, but they're 15 brothers by at least 12 wives. And of those 15 brothers of at least 12 wives, those are besides the ones that happen to be born by dad's concubines. Who was raised in a household like this and winds up with any decent idea of a marriage relationship? And that's where this starts, is that this young man is raised as the third oldest in a home without boundaries. And when you start with something like that, what you realize is a house without boundaries gives you no sense of right or wrong, so you have to invent your own. I was raised in a household much like that on the south side of Chicago. It was originally where I was originally born. And, uh, and I was reborn, actually, in that area, too. But it is important to note that I remember when I first came to Christ, I was 19 years old. And I remember actually asking the believers around me, where can I look in a Bible to find where it's right and wrong, where right and wrong is? Because I knew at least this much. I didn't know what real right and wrong was. Now, born within each of us is a sense of right and wrong, a desire to know what right from wrong is. And if we don't get a decent example in the household, what we often find is we make up our own. Well, from there we start doing the math. And if I start doing the math in regards to when David was and how old David was when someone like these older boys, these three older ones specifically, uh, Amnon, Daniel, and then Absalom, were born, that tells us that when we get to 2 Samuel 11, where David falls with Bathsheba, takes this girl and has an illicit, sinful, sexual relationship with her, gets her pregnant, and then has her husband murdered, this boy at that point is roughly somewhere around 19, 20 years old. Now that is old enough to figure out what dad's up to. But let's be honest, you've already seen dad being in the house with a whole lot of women, some he's married to, some he's not. And I know there are some of you that you may have come from a household where maybe you're not familiar with your dad or, you know, you've kind of been in those situations where like, and I talk often to people, they're like, you know, this is my brother and this is sort of my half brother and I'm not really sure if I'm related to this guy, but dad kind of had a handful of paramours and, and here are kind of the children and we're all kind of shoved in the house staring at each other going, how exactly are we related? And, and on, that was real common in my neighborhood. And I just get the idea here. When you start to watch that, you really have no sense of family in that. You just kind of have this idea, how do we learn how to get along with each other? And you don't, you know, nobody goes, wow, I just want to be like dad, except maybe I want to be like a player like dad. 
And what you start to see is when you get this kind of idea here with this dad falling with a woman who happens to be his bodyguard's wife, who happens to be the granddaughter of his chief counselor, you kind of get the second issue, and that is there are heroes without morals. And your dad, pardon me for saying, is kind of supposed to be your hero in the beginning. Now, not in some sick way to sort of uh, blow the concept of God, but to be honest, to help represent the idea of what a godly father would look like. So when you get this scripture and God defines himself as your father, you don't have to get over that. Now, for some of us, when we read the word father, it's still, or it has been, a conscious effort to get over the word. It isn't like we read it and we go, oh, God's like that. That is so wonderful. We're like, wait a minute. God's like that? Because our definition of a father... Well, it really isn't a very positive thing at all. And I know what it's like if someone were to ask me at a time in my life, what is the one thing you want to be saying, not my dad? And it wasn't because he was any more wicked than any other human being. I just knew that I saw a lot of trail of hurt and pain. My parents were married and divorced and remarried six times in my first 11 years. That stopped only because my mother would pass away. She'd go and be with the Lord. But they would get violent. He would get violent. And she was dying of cancer. And she would flee. Take the kids. That's me and my twin sister. And then somewhere down the line, she would realize she loved him and she'd go back. Now, it is amazing what happens when the one man that's supposed to be, in essence, this, the emblem of what it means to be responsible and an adult, and especially as a young man, learning this is what men do or this is who men are. How weird that is when you realize somewhere down the line in your teens, you kind of get to that point where you're like, "Mm, not that guy. So then you start looking around to see who else there is to emulate. Isn't that true? And so whether that's a sports star or whether that's some form of music or some form of performer, usually it's somebody spotlit in the media in some degree, and you start finding that guy, and what you see is, because built within us by Jesus Christ, by the Father, is a desire to be wanted, a desire to be valued, a desire to be important and have purpose. He created us that way. And in creating us that way, we start to look and see other people that clearly are important in the eyes of the world, that clearly are valued in the eyes of the world, that are clearly exalted in the eyes of the world. And because we have these desires within us, we look and go, well, that guy does it. That guy does it. So what do I have to do to be like that guy? But unfortunately, when heroes have no morals, we start to, well, we stop valuing people. And what we do is we reinforce this issue of this weird warped idea of right and wrong. Because it seems like the world is rewarding guys with no morals. When somebody signs a deal for 900 grand a week, many people in the world look and go, I wish I could be and do that. What I could do with that kind of money. And you know, in the end of it all, why do we want it? Because we want to be important. Because we want to have purpose. Because we want to feel, feel impo- valuable to other people. We want to be wanted. And then we look at this and we go, now what do I do? Well, with this Absalom character, that's what we have. We have an individual who had a house with no boundaries. And then he had heroes with no morals. And you realize at that point, you start to go, wow, the world's rewarding this guy. You don't see a sense of universal justice for a guy that, in, in essence, appears to be getting away with it. He's like, he's nasty. He treats people like rubbish. But look at how everyone wants him. I want that. 
So then we have the situation that we've looked at in the last couple chapters. The firstborn of this family is a boy named Amnon. Amnon, roughly by the age of 21, 22 now, is lust sick for his half-sister, Absalom's full sister. And it says that they ate at the table in 2 Samuel 9, when in 2 Samuel 9, Mephibosheth is brought into the household, a direct a son of Jonathan, a grandson of Saul, it says that he ate with all the king's sons every night at the table. And what that tells me is all the king's sons were around the table every night. For years, it appears, the oldest brother is looking now at his teen sister with this look of lust. And what's clear and evident is that the sister, Tamar, has a full brother because it's same mom, same dad. Remember, I remind you, that's torture, torment, oppression, maka. Somewhere down the line, when this whole thing goes down, the brother says, Absalom says, this was the work. In essence, have you been with our oldest brother, Amnon? Which tells us that clearly he's already suspicious for him to connect those dots so quickly. Which I just wonder what it would have been like to sit around that table. And I remind you, you're all brothers and sisters here. And you kind of look around and there is this, the oldest, I remind you, the one in line for the kingdom. If David were to, to kick off, this would be the next king. And you're watching this guy, and if you're seeing him at the table, and there you are kind of eating and looking around, seeing what David's like. And at this point, David's a defeated dad because of his fall with Bathsheba. He will never recover, not the way that he could have. And with that, you look and you see your oldest brother, and he is checking out your sister. And you're, I don't know about you, but for me, I'd start losing my appetite pretty quick. And for me to lose my appetite, you know that's a pretty serious issue. And the reason I say that is, is that at this point now, this untempered, untempered lust starts to bud and fester in his children. And dad's a defeated man and he doesn't seem to notice any of this. And when you have not only having a home with no boundaries and heroes with no morals, as you have a house with no leader. At this point, Dad is just not being a leader. Now, let's face it. If you're going to be a leader, you're going to be unpopular in some of your decisions because part of what it takes to be a leader is you have to make choices that are right but aren't going to be feeling right to others. I've often, when there were, you may be aware, for six and a half years I taught at secondary school. And I remember somebody gave us a plaque once that says, a teacher is the one who makes you do what you don't want to do to become who you want to be. Well, that was an interesting. But the idea, and I just remember that as a coach, is the idea that you making people run at a time when they have no interest in running, but they're never going to win without it. And you're training them. And part of why the reason we have physical trainers, personal trainers, is because they're the ones that push us when we would have already stopped. Because they help us to do what we don't want to do that we need to do to get better. And the reason I say that is, is that that's what a leader does. A leader has to make decisions other people aren't going to like, but for the benefit of the people that he represents. David here, and part of that has to be that you have to be aware of what in the world's going on in your house. But because David has blown and he's been guilty of this illicit sexual encounter and he's been guilty of murder, you kind of get the idea here that even though David knows he's been forgiven, he has lost his ability in his mind to judge properly. 
He's lost. It's almost like he stepped off the position that was granted him as a father and not just as a king. Now, can I just say this to you? Listen, please, please hear me in this. Because the enemy loves to work in this area on every one of us. He loves to remind you of that thing you blew, that sin you committed, that somehow now he's like, now you are disqualified from anything that you meant. You shouldn't even call yourself a Christian. Have you ever had the enemy tell you that? I can't even believe you call yourself a Christian and you've done that. And, And it's like it could have been something 40 years ago and you're only 20. But it's somewhere in all of that. You know, you're kind of looking back and it's like, you know, maybe you've heard it said, hey, when the enemy, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. You know, somewhere in all that, you have to remember, we still win. And the blood of Christ still covers. No, that's not licensed to sin. But what the enemy loves to do is get you to disqualify yourself so that you can stop the ministry God has called you to to change the world. Now, David, whether he knows it or not, God has already, well, he knows this much. God has given him a promise that he's going to build a house through his son. And he's got to look here and he sees his oldest son. And as he sees his oldest son, somewhere in all that, if I were, you'd think you'd be scrutinizing that individual to say, is this kid really, what do I have to do to prepare him to take over the throne? But what do you do when you've got that many kids from that many wives, not to mention the ones that are on this side from his paramours, his concubines? I mean, it's just it gets to this place where you just realize it's a very, very different world. And then you put in that a fall. And but let's face it, no matter how public the fall was, it was certainly in the household. And his kids were teens. These boys were teens when dad fell like that. They were no. I mean, you knew they knew what's going on. But it gets worse. When you have a house without a leader, do you know what happens? You feel like it's going to be your responsibility. If anything's going to happen, I have to do it. Sadly enough, that's sort of true and often. Let's say if you were raised in a household where what you have, and, and I noticed this, when a dad feels, feels defeated by sin, it becomes the paralysis of a past sin or sins, and it doesn't even have to be his own. Other people can feel defeated by other people's sins but be so affected by him, it becomes something that defines them instead of refines them. What you find is then the dad becomes a neglecting dad. When the dad feels like a failure, isn't that what defeated means? Whatever it is that causes him to feel like a failure, he just can't help but feel like he can lead, he can't feel like he can lead his family forward because he's still stuck chained to some past event that he can't get past himself. And so you take a kid with a house with no boundaries, so you invent your own right and wrong, and then you reinforce it with heroes with no morals. And then you take from that then a home with, or a house with no leaders, with no real genuine leader in honor, and a defeated dad that now is becoming neglecting. And you know what you have? A criminal son. You take somebody that feels like they have to step in and make something happen and they have no real sense of right and wrong. Do you know what they call that? A vigilante. And you have two different kids that have done this here. The oldest, Amnon, the oldest brother, roughly 22, 21, 22, looks at his teen sister. She may be somewhere around 15 or 16, and he wants her. And he wants her so bad, he takes his cousin, David's brother's son, and and gives him this counsel, fake sick, let her come in and nurse you, and then take her for yourself. And dad, of all people, 
actually unaware of the situation, completely removed from it because he's still trapped in his own thing. Even though he writes this beautiful psalm about forgiveness, you can tell he still carries it on the back of his shoulders. And somewhere in all of this, he sends his daughter to this situation where this guy's going to rape her. And it happens to be her half-brother in the household. Where did his brother, where did her brother learn that? Saw with dad. And we can't say that David raped Bathsheba, but what you have is an illicit sexual situation in both cases. And I wonder what it would be like to be David and to know sooner or later you sent her to that. Well, now she, he gets to this point where he's had it with her. Once that sexual encounter, that illicit sexual encounter has happened, he is sick of her at this point and off she goes and he has her, she has, he has her physically removed from the room. And now here she was, a favored, honored daughter that has been disgraced in her own household, the place where it should be the safest. She comes back. Somewhere in all this, Absalom, her full brother, catches her and says, Did did Amnon do this to you? And so he takes her into his household and she remains then, in essence, estranged for the rest of her life. This is a girl whose whole life will be permanently affected because of somebody else's sin, not her own. She did nothing to deserve this. Nothing at all. You know what she did? She was obeying her father's command when this happened. But now that brother, Absalom, has seen something that he hates. For good reason. And justice must be served. Interesting, by the way, for what it's worth, we read in verse 21, the next verse after all of that, it says, but when David heard of these things, he was very angry. And I wonder, who did David hear it from? You ever wonder if he actually heard it from Absalom? What would that conversation be like? Absalom comes to his father and tells his dad, Dad, your oldest has raped my sister. What you going to do? And what we see is that David was a man who we read was angry, very angry according to this, but he did nothing. So there was anger without action. Now, let's say it. When you're angry, often that's the most foolish time to just act. But David was more than just a dad. He was also king. And now all of a sudden, David has the responsibility as the primary judiciary of the entire country to be able to pronounce a judgment. And in those days, it wasn't like they had a police force. If you did something wrong, you were brought out and the offended parties were the ones who then went actually inflicted the punishment. And let's face it, who's going to do that with more vigor than the people who were affected? Which means that David would have had to pull his son out and stone him publicly in front of everyone else. But could David throw a stone? To think, wait a minute, what you did is you drew a girl in because of your lust that didn't belong to you and forced her into this relationship. And I wonder if David just kept playing Second Samuel 11 in his own head. But because he couldn't step past that sin, because he couldn't see that sin in any, anything other than that sin in his own life, when he starts to look at these things, he's lost his ability to have proper judgment. And so he does nothing. He is paralyzed. And now look at what you have. You have an Absalom who was raised in a, house with, or a home with no boundaries. 
So he has to invent his own right and wrong, and that's his own sense of justice. He has heroes with no morals, which then shows him, that reinforces that mindset. And then he sees this house with no leader, and with this house with no leader, you can see him going, well, I'm going to have to take action. And then he sees that enforced when he sees somebody that was angry without action, that didn't take the proper action, that he was responsible to take. What's left as a result of that? I mean, let's face it, at that point, if you don't take things into your own hands, you feel a total sense of either apathy or hopelessness. It's either apathy or action. So what happens for two years? That brother, Absalom, third in line, stares down his brother for two years at the dinner table. Do you see that as a dad now? I mean, there are certain things you kind of notice around the dinner table. No matter how many people are at the dinner table, and somebody who's given you the stink eye tends to be one of those things that sticks out. There have been times, because I have two girls that are vivacious when it comes to emotion. Uh, those are just my daughters. That we've been out at a dinner somewhere, and there will be 20, 30 people around the table. But I'm always looking at my kids. And I look, and there are times where they seem to be not getting along. And I mean, I notice that right away. My radar goes ding, 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 ding. And I'm pulling, hey, is everything okay? Do I need to do something here? Because, man, my pizza just doesn't taste like it did just five minutes ago before I noticed this. I start to look at this, and I start to see this is a problem. David is just not stepping in at this point at all. He's becoming neglective and being neglective. The house is in chaos. You know, when you watch a shepherd with sheep, and the shepherd steps in, and you see a strong shepherd. We're not talking about overbearing, but we're talking about one that clearly knows where he's going, that knows his sheep by name because he's involved with them. You know, he really has a personal interest in each of them. It's amazing how orderly sheep can be. But you remove a sheep for a period of time, one of the first things they start to do is headbutt each other. Now, which is a bit funny because you're aware sheep have these giant cotton things on the top of their head. So, you know, it's like, it's like a pillow fight as they ram heads. But, but, but you watch this because they start ramming for position to try to take over that spot that seems to be vacant. And you watch that in a household when there really isn't a father. And by the way, I'm not to pick on mothers. I watch some single mothers that work their butts off to try to provide for their family. But you still go, well, what does a godly man look like? And no matter what a woman can do, and women can do amazing things. Look at, there are some things men can't do, like give birth. By the way, can I just say for that, hallelujah, right? I mean, I don't even want to think about the anatomy of it, but what's for sure on that is hallelujah, thank you, Lord. But on the other way of it, there are many things a woman can be, but there's one thing she cannot be, and that's a father. She can play the role of a father, but she cannot show a godly man because ultimately there's a conflicted image of going, well, that's my mom. And then you go, well, the closest thing I've seen to a godly man was my mother. What does that say? Now, the reason I say that is, is this is the situation we're in here. And so what happens now? Interesting, somewhere in all of this, that number two son seems to have disappeared. So, I mean, Chiliab, Daniel, somewhere he's kind of out of the picture. So what you have at this point is, really, Absalom's then second kid in command. Now, what that means is, you know, that Amnon's pit. You know, that means he's, you know, in training is the idea of it. He's, you know, or he's a kid, actually, a king in training. So uh, as he's kind of, he's a prince in training, and as that's the case, 
the moment that he does this to his sister, at the very least, he should lose the right of becoming the king. He should actually lose that birthright, and that would fall then to Absalom. If the second brother, wherever it happened to him, really is gone. Most scholars talk about him dying, although the scripture doesn't say it, so you have to guess. Now, all of that to say this, when you see dad do nothing, and this is the situation, for two years he's staring down his brother, but in those two years he's hatching a plot. And then he says, you know, it's time to shear the sheep. And I remind you, David was a shepherd originally. It's time to shear the sheep. Let's have the whole family come with me. This is Absalom speaking. And dad's like, you know, that's too much trouble. Look at how many of us there are. And he goes, well, I tell you what, how about if I just take my oldest brother? Now, I don't know how absolutely blind and daft you have to be at this point to go, okay, it's been two years, he's still staring down his brother. I kind of get the idea that this isn't blowing over. Yeah, okay, go ahead. The last time he said he did something like this, he sent his daughter unknowingly to, to a, a rape situation. Now he's in a situation where he's sending his son and his son's going to get murdered. And think about that again. It's an illicit sexual encounter and murder. The very things David was guilty of. In 2 Samuel 11. So Amnon goes, but all of the sons go. Amnon just happens to be one of them. And what Absalom says, and understand, he's got servants that are clearly at every beckoning command, which sounds a lot like David, who said, go get me that girl. And, as he, and Absalom says, let's get this guy drunk. Let's get my older brother drunk, and then let's kill him. And they do it. But then I think, wow, remember back in 2 Samuel 11? How David tried to get Uriah drunk. And remember, Uriah was one of David's bodyguards. I imagine the guy was probably a pretty tough cat. But then David was the one that they sang. David has slain his tens of thousands, and this is his oldest. Do you kind of get the idea that this guy might be a bit rough too? So you imagine it's like, well, if we're going to take this guy down, we might as well make sure that he's kind of hosed first. Let's get him drunk. And then when he's like, oh, I'll kill you. Well, then you take him down. And they did, and they kill him. And then it tells us, and please hear this, and we'll get into our text because it actually goes quite quick. In this, then, Absalom flees, and he flees to Geshur. Geshur, by the way, again, that area of Syria today. Uh, Geshur, by the way, the king's name was Talmai. Happens, Talmai happens to be Ma'aka, remember, oppression, torture, happens to be her dad. So in essence, what happened is Absalom went to grandpa. And he's in a foreign country, but I want to remind you, he was not banished by David. He fled there after killing his brother. And that's where we left off. This is, you, want to, you really want to make an Absalom? Well, first of all, all you have to do is not offend somebody as a Christian by not telling them the right from wrong. Neglect them. Say, well, I don't want to upset them. I don't want to offend them, so I'm just not going to go near them. Now, look, at, I'm not telling you if somebody becomes nuts on you that it's your fault. We'll do a good enough job of beating ourselves up. The issue is, how do I avoid that in the future so that I could say, well, I've done what I could? Because I know this. It seems like there was this amazing father in a parable Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke that still has a son that goes prodigal. And by the time the kid repents, what seems obvious is this dad really loves this kid. And the reason I say that is, you can be an amazing father and still have a prodigal son. But the difference is whether you beat yourself up over it. It still feels horrible. As a pastor, there are some people who have gone mental on us. And the only comfort 
personally is to know that it's a lie. When you get your comfort from the Lord and say, Lord, I trust that you're sovereign and you're going to make good of this. But when people come at you with their guns loaded and they have their craziness on, their crazy face on, and you listen to everything they say, and and you're like, you do know that's a lie, right? At least you can go to sleep saying, okay, I do know that was a lie. And there's a strange, small bit of comfort, even though the horrible discomfort of everything else is still there. In this situation now, this kid has been, this kid has run off. And he's run off now north, northeast. Joab, by the way, David's commander, has already lost respect for David because of the whole situation back in 2 Samuel 11. And with that then, read with me chapter 14. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. Joab sent it to Koa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner. Put on your mourning apparel. Don't anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning for a long time for the dead. So what you get then is this guy, this commander who already has a problem with David at this point, is going and he's hiring an actress from a place called Tekoa. Now, interestingly enough, the only other place where you're really going to see Tekoa is going to happen 300 years later when another shepherd is there and God contacts him named Amos. Perhaps you're familiar with the book of Amos. The book of Amos was surprisingly written by... Who do you think wrote the book of Amos? Amos, well done. Amos wrote the book of Amos. Right. And Amos was a sheep herder from Tekoa. Interesting, the whole uh, book is it's like nine chapters long. It's an amazing story, and God does. But in the simplest of it all, is it's like there is no justice in the house. The rich are getting richer, and the poor are getting more oppressed. And I'm going to call you to account for that, for your neglect. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, in all of that, this gal gets hired. And she gets hired, in essence. Joab, just like Absalom, is taking matters into his own hands about it. And so what happens is that at this point... He's hiring this actress to play David, much like what Nathan did, if you remember, when he nailed David on Bathsheba. It says then in verse 3, Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, and interesting, by the way, no one just runs in on a king. You're probably aware of that. That would be like running in on the president. There has to be somebody there to stand to guard, even if it's a woman. You wouldn't, you wouldn't imagine who this point, who that man probably is, is Joab. No, for that man, she goes and says, When the woman Tekoa spoke to the king, verse 4, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. And the king said to her, What troubles you? And she said, Well, indeed, I'm a widow. My husband's dead. You know, you kind of get that from the widow statement. Now your maidservant had two sons. And the two fought with each other in the field. And there was, and no one was to depart them. No one was there to intervene. But the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also. So they would distinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. Now, get her story. The woman has no husband at this point. So her only way of being provided for is from her two children. She's got two boys. And of the two boys, they get into a fight. One kills the other one. 
Now let me ask you, if two boys are in a fight and one kills the other one, is that boy guilty of murder? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's actually, it's not supposed to be complicated. If you kill someone, that's kind of murder. Unless it's self, I mean, unless there's extenuating circumstances. But in this one, the two guys are fighting. Was he intending to hurt him? Absolutely. Was he intending to kill him? It really doesn't matter in this sense. Still killed him. And because of that, he's guilty of murder. So the woman says, but here's the problem. And here's what happens that traps people. Is I, have a, I know this is what the law says, but this is, my, this is my special circumstance. And I can tell you, as a pastor for, for 25 years, I can't tell you I've heard it all, but boy, I've heard them. I know that the Bible says don't get divorced, but do you have any idea how loud this woman snores? You know, as if God's like, wow, why didn't I think to put that in there? You're right. I, wait till we get the new version out, the new New Testament, you know. But you don't understand. I don't see anywhere where she was going to get that ugly as she got old. I've heard that. And I'm like, well, what do you mean ugly? She's like, well, she's all wrinkly now. I'm like, have you looked at yourself? And then I'm like, let's go to Ephesians 5, where it says you're to present your wife as spotless without blame and without wrinkle. And the reason I say that is it is amazing where you're like, I know this is what... Now look, at, let me, so can I just say out of love for you, don't try this with me. Don't say, I know this is what the Bible says, but... And the moment you say, but, I'm like, keep your butt out of it. This is what the Bible says. That's the point. Well, I know it says not to do this, but I've come up with the situation. And that's where she's at. You know, look at, I know that justice needs to be laid on this guy, but if you do that, what's going to happen to me? Now, interesting, what it tells us is, notice it says that, the, that it says the whole family rose up against your maidservant. What that tells me is she does have family. You could easily miss that. And the rest of the family is responsible, I remind you, to inflict the punishment on this kid for murder. So what happens is the rest of the family says, we need to do this. Now, if the family were to supposed to be right, they would also have to provide for her because that's all part of it. But then she's like, but then the name of my husband will be extinguished, which would be true unless, of course, somebody else were to become a kinsman redeemer. But you'd be like, have you read the book of Ruth? On the other side of it, you can feel for the woman because he's like, you know, I didn't do this. Interestingly enough, you have two boys fighting in a house without a father. Did you notice that? Well, with all of that, now David has this weird place. And please hear me in this. David has to decide between justice and mercy. David has to decide between the power of the law and the power of mercy and what the situation he's in is he's going to have to only choose one. One's going to suffer for the other. Let's be honest. If he chooses justice, there's clearly no mercy. Nail the kid, deal with it, lady. On the other side of it, he could say, well, let's take care of your son, but then he actually allows a crime to go unpunished. I'd like you to consider the fact, outside of Jesus Christ, there is no religion, no mindset, no philosophy out there that can actually reconcile both. Either what you've done is you've done wrong and you try to do nice things, but that doesn't pay for your wrong. 
and, 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 and it tells you in other religions, if you do that, perhaps that person will be merciful. Perhaps. How do you even know? The guy's so moody, you, can't, you could be really nice and he could just caught him on a bad day. That's the danger here. Or you've got someone that's like, hey, just do whatever you want. And if you do whatever you want, that's totally cool. But then there's no justice. You know, the only time a person that makes up their own rules wants justice is when they're personally affected by it. They're like, we need to tolerate everyone in everyone's view until that view somehow affects me and criticizes my view. That's amazing how that works out. But you know what you have at that point is, again, you start that with households without fathers. The moment you pull a father out of, I mean, a, a genuine father out of a household, then you have to come up with your own right and wrong. And the government, they're not going to give you that. They're only going to punish if they do it right. So what you have is you look to the media, and don't you, to try to find out what right and wrong really looks like in a practical way? And boy, isn't that a dangerous thought. Now, here's the good news. God needs to punish wrong, all wrong, but he also wants to show mercy. And God demonstrated that by taking all of our wrong and punishing his son for it. Who his son, by the way, I remind you, volunteered. Because he didn't have any, any sins to pay for of himself. He took your sin and my sin upon himself voluntarily at his own volition so it could be paid for. Isn't it an amazing thought when you really consider that? Because as a result of that, my crimes have been punished. My sins have been accounted for. My guilt has been properly vanquished. There's the beauty. I think you'd have to be absolutely insane you have to be a maniac not to choose the forgiveness of Jesus, in my opinion. Because why in the world wouldn't you want that bill paid for? How proud could we be to say, no, I'd rather pay for that myself. But let me say it on a more practical sense. Because this is something I watch happen often with Christians. Of course, you're aware, as I am one. Compassion. You better be really careful how you issue Compassion. Because often you can issue compassion like mercy at the expense of something else. Often I watch compassion comes at the expense of God. Because what we really want to do is let someone know we feel their pain. So what happens is someone loses their son. How horrible would that be? Someone gets in a car accident. That's a terrible thing. Someone gets terribly sick or is diagnosed with a terminal illness. And you sit down and you say, I don't know why God would do this to you or why God allowed this. But I just want you to know, I, on the other hand, care at this moment. Now, we're not saying it exactly like that, but that's what we sound like if we're really going to be honest. When somebody's spouting lies or when someone's trying to embrace something that we know is harmful, we don't want to go, hey, 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 stop that now. Because the road you're on is a road like Absalom. And there's nothing healthy about it. Well, you don't understand. I've gone through all this pain. I'm sure you have. And I want you to know I feel your pain but I'm not going to let you add to that pain by further accusation the enemy wants to throw in at a moment like this. All you're doing is adding to it. How horrible is that? And you know what you do on the other side of it? If you are in a situation where you've been hurt, and who in the world hasn't been hurt? And I'm not trying to belittle whatever you've gone through, but if you've been hurt, betrayed, insulted, reviled, reproached, made fun of, mocked, abused, scandalized, uh, you know, ostracized, 
neglected. At that moment, the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you and say, you know, you're going to need to forgive. And you're like, but I don't want to forgive. You could see God, if you were being honest, saying, yeah, I wouldn't have had to tell you if you wanted to. But you're not punishing the crime by not forgiving. You're punishing yourself. And if God were to be honest, and you're punishing him. On the other side of it, what the enemy wants to do at that moment is he wants to go and throw further accusation. So if he can throw further accusation, you know what you can add to that offense? Anger, selfish, self-righteousness, and that sense of your own made-up sense of justice like Absalom. Let's be honest. And you're justified. Nowhere in the life of Absalom will we ever, forgive me for this spoiler, (coughs) will we ever see him get repentant and say, you know what I did was wrong and I really should have put this in different hands. I should have laid this and said, Dad, you really need to handle this. Because he wasn't seeing Dad handle it, so what was he going to do? You might want to get, I think it's around the back. Yeah, that's okay. Not a problem. So please hear me in this. In a situation like this, you have a kid who's made up his own sense of right and wrong, then he's given his own sense of initiative, and he is never going to back down on that. He is a vigilante, and he's become his own Batman. And as he's become that, nowhere is there ever going to be contrition or repentance or confession. What we see is the kid left, and at this point, this woman's telling this story, and now, what do you think the father's doing? Do you think he can easily project this on his son? And he looks and he goes, I do miss my son. I want him back. And I remind you, this wasn't just the death of his firstborn, but this was also then, in essence, it seems to be the loss of the next son and heir of the throne. Well, when we're dealing with something, like that, either we reinvent the truth and the law, or we put ourselves above the law, or we grant clemency to ourselves at the expense of it, but one way or the other, we're definitely not doing what God told us to. Or we can confess it, forsake it, and let God be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's what we're robbing ourselves of. And you could say, but I don't have the power to forgive. And you, you, you're probably right. I don't either. But I can tell you this, that the one who granted forgiveness to anyone who would want, who would want it, including Herod or Pilate or, or Hitler, anyone else that would call out to God. Now, we don't have any record of that for Hitler, but who knows? I'm just telling you that the one who granted all of that lives inside of you. And that's the power for which we live, isn't it? And if the one who forgave the world of its sins lives inside of me, that's why I need to ask the power to forgive. That's how that works. Well, can I just say as we're almost, we're almost done to a close on this, if there's someone that you need to forgive tonight, don't leave this place without it. And if you feel like there's just no way I have the power to do that, come and seek me out and let's pray together and let's watch God do something pretty amazing. Actually, radically amazing. Let's set you free. Perhaps you've heard it, unforgiveness is like drinking poison despite your enemies. What was that? David says in verse 8 then, go to your house and I'll give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, she's going to push it now, my lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and my father's house and the king be in his throne be guilty. Clearly, if you're going to show mercy, somewhere this guilt's got to go. That's what she knows if there's going to be both. If you're going to be a righteous king, you have to punish wrong. 
But a defeated David has lost his ability to be balanced in his judgment, even though he's the high court. In 2 Samuel 12, when Joab says, hey, look at either you take this king, you take this, uh, this area, this city of the Ammonites, or I will and I'll call it by myself, it's clear that Joab has no respect for David in this. So the king said in verse 10, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. In other words, hey, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. They start messing with you, go and get me. Verse 11, so she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest he destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. David's passed his judgment. And his, his judgment is, Your son's been pardoned. Now listen, though the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The one thing Jesus says, he took two things that could not reconcile and he put them together at the cross. One was the crimes of our heart and our guilt. And the other was the mercy of God. And that was the cross where Jesus met us. Therefore, the woman said in verse 12, now she's going to bring down the gavel on him. Please let your maidservant speak on a word to my king, my lord, the king. And he said, say on. The woman said, Well, then why have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty. Do you get the idea he's got this guilty look on his face while he's saying this? And that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. I remind you, David's got a whole lot of kids. But she looks and goes, there's going to be no future if this kid doesn't come back. And then she says, yet God does not take away life but he devises means so that the banished ones are not expelled from him. He has one way, but the banished one, I want to remind you, David didn't banish Absalom. Absalom fled. Well, with that, now therefore I've come to speak this thing to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant says, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. And the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant says, The word of, the, of my lord, the king, will, be, will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord, the king, in discerning good and evil. Isn't it nice what she's saying? If it were only true. And may the Lord your God be with you. you know, have you ever heard this? That flattery is something you would only say in front of the person and gossip is something you would never say in front of the person. I kind of get the the flattery on this. Then the king answered and said to the woman, notice what he says in verse 18, please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman says, please let my lord, the king, speak on. And the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? He's like, Joab put you up to this, didn't he? I remind you, it's more than likely he's in the room. And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in my mouth of your maidservant, to bring about this change of affairs. Your servant Joab has done this thing. But my lord is wise, according to the wisdom of of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. Now he looks, and remember, she's just trying to nail him like Nathan did. And David goes, oh, I smell a rat. And the king said to Joab, tells us he's there, All right, I've granted this thing. Now, therefore, go back and bring the young man Absalom. The problem is David's really not granting forgiveness. He's been backed into a corner through the stratagem of his commander. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. 
And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. Yeah, he, the one he didn't ask, by the way. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but he did not see the king's face. This is the problem. Is because, by the way, Absalom, I remind you, hasn't returned in the way that he should have returned. As a result of that, David isn't granting any form of forgiveness. And it says, Now, in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Now, please hear me in this. Everything about the way that Absalom looked on the outside made him the fine-looking featured man. But everything on the inside was filthy and nasty and rotten. And so many people like to take and compare the prodigal son in a moment like this to Absalom. And isn't it great how David brought Absalom back into the house? But Absalom was absent of, of contrition, of humility. He didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't confess a sin of any sort. He went back because he was invited back and they had to go get him. When you look at the story of the prodigal son, that prodigal son came to and said, Oh my goodness, this is so stupid where I'm at. I'm telling you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father and say, I am not even worthy to be called your son. That's true humility. But you know, if you could just let me work as a servant in your household, I'd be okay with that. It'd be more than I deserve. He did not come with any sense of entitlement. He didn't come back claiming himself to be a prince. He didn't come back claiming to be a son. He just came back and said, please, can I just somehow get back into this house? Because I really miss you and I miss this and I'm wrong. This guy came back demanding to be a prince. And what we're going to see is that he is hot on his way to a coup, to a, coup a mutiny at the threat of his father's life. Oh, beloved, please hear me in this. Because there are times where we see an individual and we're like, man, we need to go chase after that individual. They're hot in their sin. And we try to tell them, man, you need to repent. And they're like, you know, back off. And then they've offended you and they've done stuff. And you want to forgive them. And you forgive them in your own heart, but they're still living that horrible life. And then somewhere down in it, all that, you're just like, give me any sign. I'm going to keep chasing them until they look at it. If the Lord tells you that, do it. But scripturally, what you find is often, if they still set the rules upon their return, there is not the humility that is necessary to see a genuinely repentant individual. So when someone really blows it, and then it gets called into the carpet, and they see that, and then instead of them being humble and contrite about it, instead they're demanding rights at a moment like that, well, you still need to do this for me, and you still need to do that for me, and you think, you have no right to command those things. In a moment like this, you should just be like, look it, if I could even just stay here in this house, it would be more than I deserve. But you start taking that and blaming everybody else for your problems. And in a moment like that, you just never account for your own sin. You become above it. You become an Absalom. And you know what Absalom's going to do? He's, he's going to gather a bunch of people that, and he's going to try to become the king instead of David. Because what he didn't do by his lack of repentance is submit himself to the king. And he's like, he has no interest in sitting under his father. But instead of sitting under the father, he wants to actually be the one to call the shots. And this is what happens in us too if we're not careful. 
as we, we get confronted with our own sin, and instead of being broken about it and humble and, and being in a place where we realize that the only reason, the only reason why we have any right to make any claim to God is because of his kindness, not because of any of our own merit. And if we can't claim that at a moment like that, there's got to be something desperately wrong with us. That prodigal looked at his dad and his dad came running for him, but his dad came running for him the moment he saw his son coming his way. And he's like, look, at, I want to restore you. But what happens when you restore an Absalom? You're, in essence, adopting an assassin into your household that is there to destroy your household, whether you like it or not. Within a chapter, David is going to flee from his house because Absalom is going to try to kill him. He'll have gathered an army. David's going to be weeping because his kid's trying to kill him to take over his throne the very kid he brought back into the household. Because somewhere in all of that, and can you imagine? Because somewhere in all that, other people around him were looking and saying, you know, you really should bring this person back in. Well, what David did is he did it. This is what happens when you do it at the expense, though, of the law or expense of the truth. As what happens as a result of that is you feel like you're above it. Now look at what happens ultimately at the end of it all. Gathering your people and recruiting for your cause to villainize a king. Not because of David's neglect, to be honest. Because he feels like he feels like he's a better person for the job. And he'll try to paint David as a villain in many ways that David really just wasn't. Well, with that in mind, I just want to say this as we go to prayer. First of all, there's the area of forgiveness in regards to anyone who's offended us. And we remember, we, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive our sins as we forgive those who sins against us. It's like, look, at, I should expect to be forgiven to the extent that I myself forgive. But on the other side of it, is there any sin in our own lives that we actually need to take to the Father and not just go, okay, well, I'm going to bank on that whole cross thing and all of that, but not have repentance and not have a real genuine contrition and not even confess it, but just be like, come on, I'm a son, just deal with it. You know, as if we have the right to set our own terms of these things. And I'd say, you know what? But for your grace, I would be only and exclusively a miserable wretch. And because of your forgiveness is the only reason I have a right to sit at this household in the first place. The moment I feel like I'm above Mephibosheth, remember the one who was the enemy's son who was brought into the household at David's love? The moment I feel like I'm greater than that guy, I know I'm in trouble. And this is what I want to pray, because only through Jesus Christ can both all of the truth of the law be met and all of the mercy still be exercised. And I don't want to live my life in the expense of either one of those things. Do we want to show mercy? Of course we want to show mercy. We just can't show mercy at the expense of truth. We can't show mercy at the expense of God's standard. And we as Christians can do that every day. When people say, is this what God really says? And we don't want to say yes because we know it might offend them, but we know it's the truth. The moment I bring Jesus in, we say, look, at this is the truth of guilt, but on the other side of it, here is the forgiver of that guilt, Jesus Christ. That is truth and grace presented before them. But if we just say, well, Jesus has come to forgive you and save you, but you haven't, we haven't told him any in regards to the standard of God's truth, 
Well, then they don't even feel like they need to be saved. Let's be honest. They're like, why do I need a savior? I'm not in any trouble. I'm not guilty. I've made up my own laws. And according to my own laws, I'm not guilty at all. It is amazing how even Christians can do that. And say, what do you mean? Yeah, I kind of I kind of did something back when, whatever, get over it. I'm like, wow, I should get over it. How do we move forward? Let's deal with this thing. Let's call it what it is. And then let's move forward. Well, would you pray with me? Lord, I recognize as we've looked at the making of an Absalom, first of all, don't let us be people, Lord, who in any way fashion that. Let us not be negligent in our representation and our standard and, and to be honest, in our presentation of the truth. And I pray as you make the men in this room fathers in time, the single ones, Lord, let it be in proper proportion and in proper steps. Make us fathers, Lord, that our children will never have to get over the word. And we pray, Lord, for our fathers in this room, our earthly fathers, that they would know your love, they would know your grace, that they would be consumed, Lord, with the sweetness, Lord, of of your presence, Lord. What we want for them is to know you and to know you beautifully and intimately, not just conceptually. And we pray, Lord, for men who have carried with them the baggage, Lord, of, of just countless wakes of bad choices. Free, Lord, men from those things. Lord, if there be any sin we look back to, be it our own or sins against us, sins of our own that we can't get past the sin and, and, and that we've done or sins that others have done to us and we can't get past the forgiveness that we really need to grant. Lord, I pray tonight by your power that you would actually give us the power right now. And we recognize the word forgive doesn't mean to lose any emotion, but it means to, ca- to, to cast away and abandon. And that's my prayer, is that, we, that you would, even if we can't, cast it away from us. Stop, help us to stop embracing it with our emotions, with our memories, Lord. Let's just let you cast it off and, and, and lead us away from that, that we can abandon it and, and allow you to redefine us. Lord, I pray that if we ever find ourselves in the stupid place of making choices in sin, that there would be a humility and a brokenness and a confession that come with real and genuine repentance. That we wouldn't just come demanding rights after having broken your heart. But in humility, we would say, Oh God, please, oh God, please, by your grace, forgive me, sinner that I am, like the publican who fell on his knees, not raising his eyes to heaven. But Lord, we trust that you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Your word makes that clear. And I pray tonight for genuine forgiveness. Forgiveness that allows you to cast off and abandon. And genuine repentance that allows us to forsake our own sin and humility and confess it to you and walk from it now. Lord, kill the Absalom in each of us. 
that wants to be the Lord of their own destiny instead of submit to you, Father. Rule and reign over us as you properly should. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross so that all our sin could be paid for. Where all of the crimes of our heart would be properly punished and yet it would show mercy and paying for them and rising again to give us a new life free from their guilt. So let us walk out of here differently than we came in, unencumbered, not weighed down, but free as you intend for us to be. In Jesus' name. Amen.